Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. A little bit about what we're going to be doing with this new series. Um, our church, Horizon Church, is not, it is not an old church. We're actually a fairly young church. If, um, if we were counting in dog years, we would be just over two years of age as a church. If we're counting in people years as a church, we don't even have our driver's license yet. So we are not um, an old church. But um, I, I was there on day one, which was a good thing because I was supposed to be speaking um, when our church started back a couple years ago, and uh, we were also meeting in my backyard, a little over a dozen of us, about three blocks away from here when we met. And when we started our church, the very first Sunday, um, our church didn't have a name, we didn't have a... We spent the first summer kind of hashing through what's our vision, what are we all about, and we, we, we spent some time thinking about our name. It, somewhere in the first six weeks, I don't remember exactly, but we had a couple get-togethers, and we settled on a name at Trivia. I wish I had some candy bars to throw out, but I forgot this morning. Anybody remember at all? Anybody know what our name was at first? Valley Community Church, and you weren't even there. Very good. Um, Valley Community Church was the first name that we settled on. But uh, somewhere in the second year, once we had settled on really what our vision was and what we were all about, we ended up changing our name to Horizon because uh, what we wanted to communicate is every time you say our name, uh, we want you to think about our vision and who we are. And this is why. Um, you all know what the horizon is, right? Um, when you're walking somewhere, when you're headed on a journey, and life is a journey, the horizon is that place in the distance um, where heaven and earth connect. That's where the sky and the earth meet, the horizon. And that, in a very wonderful way, that expresses what we had determined our vision to be because we want our vision to be a place where heaven and earth connect. And so every time you say the word horizon, we want you to think that that's who we are, a place where heaven and earth connect. And then we even kind of nailed it down a little bit more specifically than that. Um, We want our church to be a place where people can connect with God, heaven, and with people, earth. And I believe that to my core. Um, I, I believe it because in some ways it's a reflection of the great commandment, what Jesus and what the scripture talks about, you know, what's the greatest commandment, love God, love people. So I, I've always felt that that, uh, that vision, connecting with God and connecting with people, is, is just what we should be about. But I have learned that believing that, believing that that's our vision and believing it's important, it is not enough to believe it. In fact, I have learned that it is not even enough just to say it that we should connect with God and with each other. I finally now know in my old age that I can't believe it, I can't say it, I have to make it happen. And so I now have determined that I'm going to invest everything I know how to do in making that happen, helping people to connect with God and helping us to connect with each other. And so that's what we'll do. So we're starting a new series, and I think that most times, if I told you we were going to spend the next couple weeks or whatever talking about connections, my guess is that most, and this is where my mind went, most of us think that we're going to spend our time talking about how to connect with each other, how do we build relationships with people, because that's usually where we drift. And I think one reason we think that way, flat out, honestly, is we think that because 
a relationship with God or connecting with God is such a difficult thing. And it is such a weird thing. To have a relationship with God is unlike any other relationship. And it's difficult and it's different. Um, one reason it's difficult is that um, God doesn't talk back um, when we talk to him. Um, he just doesn't talk back. Now, I know that some of you uh, will argue with that, and frankly, I would probably agree with what you have to say, but the bottom line is God just doesn't talk back in, in the way that anybody else talks back. I can stand in my kitchen with the refrigerator door open, and I can say, God, would you finally settle this? Are eggs good for you or bad for you? Because I want one. And God simply isn't going to answer from the living room like anybody else would answer. Um, so this connection with God, this relationship with God, is unlike any other connection, any other relationship we're going to have. But I also believe that even though it's difficult and even though it's unlike any other relationship, I firmly believe that our connection with God is by far the most important connection that we will ever make in life and by far the most important relationship that we'll ever have. So we're going to invest the next couple of weeks, and honestly, I don't even know how many yet. I don't really know where we're going after today. Well, I know next week as well. But we're going to invest the next couple of weeks in learning how do, how do I and how do you build a healthy connection and a healthy relationship with God. My goal is to be as practical in this as possible, but where we're going to start today, and we're going to even kind of fill this in a little bit next week, is we're going to start by acknowledging that if you want to build a connection with God, we have to start by recognizing that there is something between us. There's something that's messing up this relationship. Now, before we go any further and before we actually dive into this and talk about it, I, I want to pray for us because I believe that this is of supreme importance and I believe that there's a bunch of us that will have some thinking and some decisions to make before we're done this morning. So um, we're going to pray and then what we're going to do is we're going to go to Luke chapter 15, which is one of my top 10 favorite uh, places in the Bible. We're going to look at what is probably the most well-known story that Jesus ever told in Luke chapter 15, and, um, and we'll work through that. But let's pray. God, I thank you for the fact that you promised to be present this morning. Whether we are sitting here and believing that or knowing it, experiencing it, God, that's a promise you made. And God, I trust that you keep your promises. God, I thank you that when we pay attention to your word, that you do, in fact, speak to us, but it's difficult because somehow we're asked to read and trust that you're speaking, and we're asked to read words that are, at best, a couple thousand years old, and then figure out what those words mean to us and what these stories mean to us. God, I trust, and my experience has been that through your spirit, through your power and your presence, you take your word and you interact with our souls and our minds and even our bodies. And we get to connect with you in the process of doing this. And you do, in fact, speak. God, not only are you talking, but I believe that you're doing the business of changing us, of transforming our lives. So, God, if that's true, and I believe it is, then there is a supremely important burden that those of us who teach, we have this burden when we teach your word to be faithful and accurate and truthful 
This applies not only to us here in this room and to what I'm about to do, but it applies to the teachers downstairs working with kids as well. So God, I pray that number one, you'd keep us on track as teachers. I also pray that if we say anything that isn't true, or if it's not quite accurate, I trust that through your spirit, you'll be guarding all of us so that we don't leave this room or leave the downstairs having been influenced the wrong way. God, I also am so grateful that starting with the very youngest kids and all the way up to the very oldest person in this room, that when we teach truthfully and accurately, you, through your spirit, you're in the process of transforming us. You've done that in my life, and I'm grateful. Grateful, God, for how you've done that in the lives of other people. So I pray that you'll continue doing that this morning when we look at Luke chapter 15. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to... What we're going to do in working through Luke chapter 15 is um, what I'm about to do is not fair, and I will admit that uh, it's not fair because what we're going to read is a story. And when you read a story, a story is meant to be told from beginning to end without interruptions, and that's not what we're going to do. Um, As we're reading this story, I'm actually going to dissect it a couple verses at a time. So I would love to ask you to, even though we'll put all the verses on the screen, I'd love to ask you to take your Bibles um, and find Luke chapter 15. Uh, Keep them open in front of you, so especially if you're note takers, so you can see this. Or if if you want to grab a church Bible that's in your seats, you can, and you should be able to find this on page 1,589 in the church Bible. Um, Because Rather than telling a story from beginning to end, we're going to dissect it in little bits. And, tr- and this isn't fair. This is, kind of like, this is kind of like baking a cake. And rather than waiting until the cake is done, what you do is you, each, you read each ingredient. You, you eat each... Forget that illustration entirely. Um, it's just not fair what we're about to do. Um, and I know that by dissecting a story, I'm kind of ruining it. But I hope that by doing it this way... Whenever you hear this story and when you read it, and next week when we come back to the story again, hopefully you'll have a deeper appreciation for it based on how we've done this. So Luke chapter 15, I'm going to start reading right at verse 11 and 12. Now, again, if you're looking at your Bibles in Luke 15, you probably know that this story actually starts in verse 1, and you'll know that there's a series of stories about things that get lost. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and then we get to this third story, the lost son. We'll come back to those other stories next week um, and follow up with them. But I'm picking up Luke chapter 15, verse 11. We're going to read the first two verses and then stop. So this is what it says. Then Jesus told them, uh, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people, a lot going on. We'll fill in the blanks next week, but just don't have time for it this morning. Then Jesus told them, and here starts story number three. A man had two sons. Uh, Actually, sorry, I'm going to pause already. Um, you're really going to get ticked off this morning with all my stopping. But two sons, we're only going to talk about the first one this morning. We'll never even get to son number two, although son number two is really the reason for this story. We're never going to get that far. We're only going to talk about son number one. So a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. Now, pause. This is a 2,000-year-old story. 
Um, and this story is from a culture that is, is very, very much unlike our culture. And in this ancient culture, in fact, this is still true in, in parts of the world in the Middle East today. This still happens in the Middle East. There was a legal procedure in the ancient world that you could go through to divide your estate and to be sure that the person that you wanted to get your inheritance actually got it. And the legal procedure would be this. When a man sensed that he was getting old and when he sensed that death was you know, kind of around the corner, he would gather his sons around him or whoever it is that he wants to get his estate. And with, with at least two witnesses, he would give possession of his estate to his sons, but he would not give control of his estate to his sons until he died. And that was the ancient way of making sure that the people that you want to get your inheritance often got it. Now, today we solve that exact same problem with attorneys and with wills and estates. That's how today we make sure that the person who we want to get our, our estate gets it. But in the ancient world, before there were attorneys, before there were written wills, this is how they would do it. This is how they would avoid any uh, confusion. They'd gather their heirs around them, with two witnesses at least. They would name what their property was, and then they would say, I am giving it to you now. And they would give possession of their estate to their sons, but they did not give control of their estate to their sons until they actually died. And it's bizarre, it's a little bit bizarre to our thinking to actually have possession of a thing but not to have control of it, but that's what they did. And you actually see this all the time in the Bible, and we, we read about it, and sometimes kind of we skip over it because we don't really know what's going on, but in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 25, this is exactly what Abraham did. Um, in Genesis chapter 48, this is exactly what Jacob did. They're still alive, but they name their possessions and they give control of it to their sons. They give possession of it to their sons, but they don't give control of it. In fact, this messes up people, historians, kings did this all the time, all through the ancient world, especially as, even in Israel. And this messes up historians because a lot of times when we're trying to figure out which king is reigning at a certain time, a lot of times it seems that a father and son is ruling at the same time, and often they were. Because kings did this. When they sensed that they were about to die, they would call in the son that they wanted to be the next king, and the king would give that son the crown, but not the throne. He would give him the crown, but not the throne. So the person owned the thing, but he couldn't control it until the father died. So, the property would belong to the sons, but the sons didn't yet have control over it. And that's why in verse 12, and I'm pretty sure I read this, that's why in verse 12 it said that the father divided his wealth between his two boys. Both of the boys got ownership of the property, but as long as dad was alive, they did not yet have control of the property. Now, we're not going to read far enough today to figure this out, but those of you who know the story you know that when we get to the second son, there's some bizarre things that happen. When we get to the second son, the father will say to the oldest son, for example, he'll say, everything I have is yours. And that's what he meant. It really was 
the oldest son. See, he owned it all already. But even though he owned it, that's why the dad, and we'll get this far in the story, that's why the dad is able to say things like, he still has control over who eats the fattened calf, who wears the robe, who gets the ring, etc., like that. So even though he's giving, control, giving possession of it, dad still has control of it as long as he's alive. So that's what's going on in this story. Now, you also need to know that in this ancient world, in the world of Jesus, an inheritance is about far more than money. It isn't just about passing on the wealth. An inheritance in the ancient world was also about passing on responsibility. In other words, you didn't just get property. You didn't get wealth. You were actually getting the father's name as well. Uh, You inherited the father's place in the community. You inherited the father's responsibility in the clan and in the tribe and in the family and the community. So what your father is doing when he passes on an inheritance to you is not just saying, hey, here's what's in the bank. You can have it. But he's also saying, I'm giving you the life that I've built. And you now share in the responsibility for this. It's a very significant thing in the ancient world. It's a really important thing that's happening here when the father divides his inheritance. He's giving them possession, but not control. And it's about more than money. It's about responsibility. And it's about the son's place in the community, in the family, in the tribe, and in the clan. So that's what's happening here in these first two sentences. Now verse 13. Let's go back. Um, So father does this. He divides the wealth between his two sons. Verse 13. A few days later, the younger son packed up all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. Now, two really important phrases in what we just read. So we'll keep this on the screen so you can see them. In, and I don't know how your Bible, if you're looking at a different Bible, I don't know how your Bible reads. But the first phrase where it says, the younger son packed up all of his belongings. Sadly, we're missing a really important idea there. Technically, that phrase means that everything that the father had given him, he turned into cash. So he's been given possession of it, but not control of it. But he takes control anyway. He takes all the possessions he's been given, he turns them into cash. And that means while the father was still living, the son took possession and control. And in some ways, if you were in that culture, this is very much like stealing because it happens while the father was still living. And this is a moment, if, if you and I, if we had the privilege of being able to stand around Jesus in that culture and listen to this story the way they were all listening to it, and experiencing it the way they did, this is a moment where everybody listening to Jesus would kind of furrow their brow and shake their heads. 
because there's something horribly wrong here. There's a guy named Ken Bailey, Dr. Ken Bailey. He's no longer alive. He died just a few years ago. But Ken Bailey spent his entire life living in the Middle East among uh, Middle Eastern villagers who they, they live very much like people lived in the time of Jesus. They have the same values. They think the exact same way they did during the time of Jesus. So Ken Bailey, he spent his entire life teaching the Bible to these villages in the middle, Arabic-speaking villages from Algeria to Syria to Iraq to Iran and even to Israel. And he's written some books about his experience. He has one entire book about this story. And he tells about how when he teaches this story to people in those villages, when he gets to this part of the story where the son takes his possessions and turns into cash, he often asks villagers, has anything like this ever happened in your village? And they all say no, very seriously. And then he says, now, could something like this happen in your village? And they say, never. Well, what, Ken asks, what would happen if a son in your village did this? What would happen? And they all respond by saying, well, the father would be very angry. In fact, the whole village would be angry. The father would absolutely refuse to do, to give the son control and possession of the property. And then he asked, well, why would the father be angry? Why would the village be angry? And they always say, well, because it means that the son wants his father to die. And if he did it, Ken goes on, if the father did it, if the father actually gave his son his wealth, while he's still alive, gives him control and possession of it. If the father did it and let him go, what would happen? And Ken says, always he's met with silence until one person usually says rather quietly, well, the father would be shamed. We can't imagine such shame, they say. So that's the first phrase, that idea that the son packed all his belongings. He took not only possession, but he took control, and the father allowed it to happen. Now, the second phrase that's there um, is that phrase, and he moved to a distant land. Now, that's a technical phrase, and in the Bible, what that phrase means, he left his family and his tribe and his clan and his people. And he moved away. Now, that's a problem for us because when we read that, he moved to a distant land. To our thinking, any of us could move to a distant land. China, Bolivia, uh, Parisburg. We could move to a distant land if we wanted to. And we could do it without any sense of us betraying our people or our family, or our clan. But in this story, it's a very technical phrase, and that's what it means, that when the son packs up his belongings and he moves to a distant land, 
it means that the son is walking away from his dad. And he's walking away from his clan and his tribe and his people and his home. Now, we didn't read this yet, but if you know the story, you know where this son is going to end up. He's going to end up feeding pigs. Haven't read it yet, but that's what he'll be doing. That sentence just reinforces this idea that this good Jewish boy has now left his people and he's working with the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and he's feeding pigs, something a Jewish boy wouldn't do. So it's a very simple way of telling us that this boy, when he packs up all of his belongings, he moves to a distant land, it simply means he's now gone. He's now walked out of this family, his people, and his life. You know, it's an interesting thing, and again, this is still true all around the Middle East. Uh, People who live in Middle Eastern villages, when something like this happens, they actually have a ceremony um, as a way of acknowledging what the person has just done. Uh, in, in Jewish villages, still true, there's a ceremony that, called a kazaza. I think that's how you say it. Um, I'm guessing that none of you know either, so it doesn't matter how I say it. But um, It's a ceremony called a kazaza, um, and that word kazaza means a cutting. Uh, and in this Jewish ceremony, what happens when a, when a person does what this son does, walks away, they will take a clay pot, a large clay pot, and if the person is still there, they'll do it in front of him. They'll take the clay pot, lift it up in the air, and smash it on the ground as hard as they can. If the person isn't there, if he's already walked away, the clan will go to the road leading out of town where this boy has walked. They'll stand at the road, the entrance to the village, take the clay pot, and they'll smash it on the ground. And it's a way of symbolically saying that the relationship is now crushed. It's a cutting. It's a severing of relationships. It's a way of acknowledging so that everybody knows that the person who has walked away has separated himself from his father, his brother, his family, his clan, his tribe, his people. And Jesus is saying that He's using those words so that everybody who's listening understands that at this point in the story, what has gone wrong is that a relationship has now been broken. A son has decided, I don't want to be a son anymore. That's what he's saying. I don't want to be a son anymore. I want what's coming to me but I don't want to be a son anymore. Now, I suppose the question will be, well, does the father still want to be a father? And if you know the story, you know how that's going to end. But I think for everybody who's standing around Jesus listening to the story, for all of us who are reading it, everybody has to know and understand that at this point, what has gone wrong is that a relationship has been ruined. Now, everybody listening also understands 
that what that means is between this father and this son, there is now something that has come between them in this relationship. There's something that's come between them. And if they are ever going to relate to each other again, that something is going to have to be dealt with. Now, Jesus is telling us this story this way to let us all know that that is exactly where we are as human beings. If we are going to connect with God and have any kind of a relationship with him, it has to start here by acknowledging that there is something that has come between us. There's a movie, I'm kind of reluctant to tell you this, and you'll find out why, but there's a movie I like to watch every Christmas. We watched it again this year. I don't watch this movie because it's the world's greatest Christmas movie. It's not The Grinch. It's not Charlie Brown. Um, it's a movie called Love Actually. Um, a couple of you know it, and um, it's one of my favorite Christmas stories. And I can't recommend it to you because it's a story that tells, it tells stories about maybe a half dozen relationships, about a half dozen couples, and it talks about their love, actually. Don't you like how I did that? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Anyway, um, I can't recommend it to you because of the half dozen stories it tells. A couple of the stories, frankly, are pretty pathetic. And when Don and I are watching it, there's a lot of eye rolling. In fact, we fast forward through some of the relationship. But I watch it, and, and I love the story because of about two or three different relationships in this movie. In one of them, there's a very happily married, middle-aged couple with several kids. The husband ends up being seduced by his beautiful younger secretary, and he secretly buys her a necklace for Christmas. Now, his wife at home happens to be snooping around one day looking for her Christmas presents, and she finds the necklace. And she thinks this is her present. Can't wait to open it on Christmas. Christmas Eve comes, and they're sitting there, each of them opening their presents, and she gets her present from her husband. She excitedly opens it, and it's a Joni Mitchell CD. It's not the necklace. And she knows in an instant that there's another woman somewhere opening that necklace. She gets up, she excuses herself, she walks into her bedroom, and as she looks at pictures of her family, she sobs because she knows that in an instant, everything has changed. A marriage, a relationship has been broken. And there's now something between them, this husband and wife. And if there is any hope, any hope for that relationship to be healed, 
they will have to deal with what is between them. See, relationships, or all of them, based on trust, period. There is no other way. And when trust goes out the door, so do relationships. I think that's why, at least to me, the first pages of the Bible are just so painful and so catastrophic. Because you have this relationship, God and Adam and Eve, you have them enjoying kind of this blissful relationship. There is nothing between them. They walk together in the garden. They know nothing about hiding. They know nothing about betrayal, about secrets, about shame, about regret, about anger. It's just love, actually. And then one day, first Eve, and then simultaneously Adam, they start to wonder, can he be trusted? And of course, they decide that he is not to be trusted. They start to think, well, I know better than him how to run my life. I know better than God. And so they betray him. And now God is left saying to this couple he loves so much, Adam, Eve, what have you done? What have you done? You know, sometimes we think about this in church, we think about this in very juvenile ways. We think that whenever we talk about sin, we kind of picture God kind of going to us, naughty, 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 just because God likes his rules, wants to keep us in line. The problem is that disobedience, what we call sin, always ruins relationships. Always. It breaks trust. That's what sin is. Not naughty, naughty, but it breaks trust. Sin is a necklace given to the wrong woman. And in an instant, a relationship is ruined. And if you have any hope of ever being connected with God, this is where we have to start. There is something between us, and it has to be fixed. So, how? How do we deal with this? Well, let's go back to our story. Let's go back to this boy who has packed up all of his belongings, taken both possession and control of his father's wealth. He's moved to a distant land, separating himself from his people, his clan, his family, his tribe. He has 
wasted it all in wild living. Now, uh, verse 14, I think, not sure. About this time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now, again, I find myself wishing that for the sake of all of us, I wish we could stand in the crowd of people listening to Jesus, hear this the same way they heard it, and experience the reactions of people who understood what Jesus was talking about. There's two things that Jesus said that I don't think we understand in the same way they did. These things show us what this boy was thinking, and I'm not sure we get it. So let me show you. Um, the, the first of these in that Bible, and I don't know what you're looking at, but the first of these come in that Bible in verse 18 where the boy says, I will go home. Um, do you see that or what you're looking in your Bible? When Jesus tells this story, Jesus uses a really wonderful word there for that phrase, I will go home. And if you're a note taker, this is worth writing in your Bible. Jesus actually uses a word that if you could translate it literally, it means arise. Some of your Bibles might say that, I, I will arise. You have to picture this boy in a pig field, in pig slop, feeding pigs with pig food all over him, and he says, I will arise. Now, what's really important about this is that word arise has a very specific meaning. And it means, I will be resurrected. It means, I will rise up as from the dead. If you look this word up, and I did, that's the definition of this word, to raise up as from the dead. What this boy is planning is to resurrect himself. He wants a new start. He wants a new life. He wants to completely start over. Have you ever felt that way about your life? Like, I just wish... I wish tomorrow when I woke up, I could just start over. I want a new life. That's what he's saying. I will arise. 
And then secondly, what he says is his plan is to go home and ask for a job. Now, we miss this because he says, I'll go home and ask if I could be taken on as a hired servant. Because we don't understand in our culture, kind of thankfully, we don't understand the world of servants and slaves. We don't get what he's saying. He's not asking to be a slave. He's not saying, Father, can I be a slave in your household? He's asking to be a paid servant. Servants were hired people, and they were hired because they had some skill, and they would be paid for their service. So if you're standing in this circle and you're listening to Jesus in his world, you would understand that what this boy is saying to himself is, I made a mess of my life. And I am going to fix this. He is not saying, and you need to get this, He is giving zero thought to the broken relationship with his father, with his dad. He's not thinking about that relationship at all. He's thinking about his predicament. I have no money. I have nothing to eat. All the money I had, I've lost. And I've done it in a very despicable way. So he's thinking... I can fix this. I can get a job. The only person who will hire me probably is my dad, but I can go back to my dad and I can say, Dad, I want to start over. I want to resurrect my life. I need some money. Will you give me a job? So quick question. If the core problem is a broken relationship, is that how you fix it? Can you say, give me a job? Uh, Take, for example, the ruined relationship in the movie Love Actually. Imagine that husband coming to his senses and saying to himself, maybe even very honestly, saying to himself, look, I blew it. I want my marriage, so I'm going to go back and fix it. Can he fix it? And if so, how does he fix it? Can he go home to his wife and say, honey, look, I'm going to fix this. You will never have to wash the dishes again. You'll never have to clean the bathroom again. You will get a new necklace every year for Christmas and for your birthday, if you want one for your birthday, and for our anniversary, and for every Valentine's Day, and for Flag Day. You will have necklaces coming out your jewelry box forever because I'm going to fix this. Can he fix it that way? That's what we often try to do. If we think of sin as being naughty, 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 you did a bad thing, then I suppose we could fix it by being good. 
But when you start to understand that the problem is not about being naughty, naughty, the problem is about a broken relationship, then what is required to fix it is forgiveness. And that's it. That's the only thing. A relationship is going to have to be restored. The husband is required to go to his wife and say, I've sinned against you. Can you forgive me? And at that moment, it really is up to her, isn't it? It's up to her. Now, back to our pig-feeding son. That's not what he's thinking. He is not thinking, I'm going to go home and ask my dad for forgiveness and hope to restore the relationship. He's thinking, I'm going to go home, get a job, and fix this. Nevertheless, even though he's not thinking correctly, he gets up and he starts home. So let's finish the story, picking up at verse 20. So he returned home to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. And he said to his son, and his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his, sink, his finger, put it on him. Sandals for his feet, put them on him. And kill the calf we've been fattening for a feast. We have to celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has been restored to life. He was lost, but is found. And so the party began. Now, this isn't the end of the story. There's much more we won't get to. We'll return to this next week. We're not done. But remember those Middle Eastern villagers who are standing around Jesus listening to it? Remember when asked the question, what would happen if the father did this, let his son go? Remember they all said, well, we would be angry because the son wants his father to die. Remember how they answered when they were asked, well, what would happen if the father really did it? And they said, well, he would be shamed. Such shame we cannot imagine. Well, now the father is shamed deeply. In fact, there's even more shame for this father because what we're told is that from a long way off, he sees his son coming home and he gathers up his robes. He would have had to. He gathers up his robes in his hand and he races. That's the word. He races to his son and he crashes into his son and he starts kissing him and he doesn't stop. It's a wonderful word used in the Bible when Jesus said he kissed him. It means it says he just keep kissing, kept 
He kept kissing from cheek to cheek to cheek to cheek. He didn't stop kissing his son. And then the son starts his speech. He says, remember, he rehearsed this speech. He says, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now he stops there. He doesn't ask for a job. And in the West, the way we usually read this, what we usually say is at this point, the father interrupts his sons, put, puts his, his finger on his son's lisp, lisp and stops him from saying any more. But in the Middle East, they understand this a different way. They understand that what's going on is not so much that the father is stopping the son. They understand that this is the moment when everything has changed for the son. The son who thought, I'll go home and fix this. I'll get a job and I'll fix this. He did not want to go home as a son. He wanted to go home and get a job. And they understand that this is the moment when the son changed and decided he could be a son again. So he doesn't finish his speech. He doesn't say, Dad, give me a job. He responds to the gracious, undeserved love of the Father, and he simply says, I've sinned. I'm not worthy of being called your son. And what does the Father say? He says, Nonsense. Nonsense. You may have stopped being my son, but I never stopped being your father. And then notice, I hope you noticed, that what the son wanted when he said, I will arise, he actually gets. There is a resurrection in this story. Did you notice that? The father says, my son, who was dead, has been restored to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And he didn't do it by himself. The father doesn't say he resurrected himself. He says he has been restored to life. He's been found. And who did the restoring? Who did the, father, the finding? The Father. So guys, if you, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to connect with God, this is where we have to start. There is no other way. We start, as we always do, with the recognition that there is something between us. It cannot be fixed by us. It has to be fixed by the Father. So, for any of you, any of you who have never started a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this is where you have to start. Start with the acknowledgement that there is something between us. This is where a relationship starts. 
and you come to God saying, Father, I'm not worthy, but can you forgive me? Can you deal with this thing between us? And he will. For those of us who have done that, what we're about to do is an awesome reminder of how that's accomplished. It's accomplished through the cross of Christ where forgiveness is accomplished by God in Jesus. So what, we'll, what we're about to do together is maybe for some of you, for the very first time, for the very first time to acknowledge and to remember that I want a relationship with God and here is where it starts, with the Father. For the rest of us, this serves as a reminder of what God does in bringing us to himself. So would you pray with me and then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you so much for Jesus who in a masterful way tells stories about who you are, what you're like, who we are, what we're like. And how we can go about having a relationship with you. God, I think all of us can think of painful episodes in our lives, painful episodes filled with regret and hiding and destructive behaviors and secrets. And I think all of us have gone about trying to fix it ourselves, trying to be better people, trying to make ourselves good enough. And God, I thank you for the truth that fixing it ultimately is something that you do, not us. God, in wanting to connect with you, here we are this morning, starting by saying, God, there's something between us. I know it. Will you forgive us? And I thank you so much, God, that in Jesus Christ, we have this awesome hope of forgiveness Pray, God, that through what we do over the next couple minutes, I pray that this would be made very real to us, powerful way, and that we'd experience it as well as know it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Does everybody have a piece of bread that would like to take communion? So, a uh, quick Wyoming story. Um, I got to spend the last week with my granddaughter, who's four, Macy, who's four, and my grandson, who's just a little over a year old. And I... My granddaughter, um, Macy, is turning into a, like all four-year-olds, I'm not saying that she's a bad kid, because she's the best, uh, but she's turning into a masterful little liar. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, she learned that she could get out of anything by saying, well, my mommy and daddy said it's all right. So, for example, if uh, we were playing in Macy's room and Tucker wanted to come in, she would say, Mommy and Daddy said Tucker can't come into my room, which may be true, I don't know. But the other thing she would often say is in the morning when we woke up to her, up with her, rather than eating a healthy breakfast, she would say, oops, ah, three-second rule. Uh, she would say, um, Mommy and Daddy said that I can have candy for breakfast. Um, and... She's at this stage of life where it's kind of cute, you know, to think of this little girl trying to lie her way out of stuff and manipulate. Um, 
the sad thing about that is um, what happens when you're a big person? Um, are you ever ashamed of lies that you tell as a big person? Um, if right now, if right now we could choose anybody and put our life up there and go through all of our dark moments, are there moments that would be up there that you are deeply, desperately ashamed of that you would say, this is something I don't want anyone to know about me? And you'd be ashamed. Now, the reason I say that is because if you remember back to the story, do you remember how I told you all of the villagers would respond to the father? They would say that what the father is doing brings him great shame. The father does that on purpose. He's willing to be shamed for the sake of the son that he loves. This is what the cross is all about. The Bible tells us that when Jesus went to the cross, he went, quote, forsaking its shame. He hung naked on a cross, subjecting himself to the jeers and the catcalls and the howls of everyone, willingly being shamed for our sin. So picture yourself with all of your shame on display for everyone. And what Jesus does is he stands in front of you and he says, no need to look. No need for anyone else to see. I will be shamed. So you don't have to. It's an astonishing thing what the father does in willingly saying to himself, I will be shamed. So you don't have to. So when you eat this piece of bread, think of the son of the father who went to the cross willingly subjecting himself to its shame. Standing in front of you and saying, I'll take it. I'll take it. I will take your shame. So take and eat the broken body of Jesus, broken for you. Does everybody who wants to take communion have a cup? So episode two in Wyoming, our kid, the grandkids got sick. I thought I would be done with Wyoming, but I'm not. So the grandkids got sick, so they spent four days throwing up. Pretty gross. Um, so I hope none of you have queasy stomachs and like get sick just by hearing the word throw up. Does that happen to anybody? If so, you better leave now. Okay. So um, Tucker, one and a half year old Tucker, spent a couple hours one morning throwing up. And you could always tell when Tucker was about to throw up because he'd be running around and all of a sudden he'd stop and you could, you could actually see the discomfort on his face, you know, that all of a sudden he knew it was coming up. So one morning, um, we're playing early in the morning, playing in the living room, and we all saw it. 
we all knew it was coming. Tucker ran over to my lap, <laughs> crawled in my lap, and threw up all over my lap. Now, everybody, now, maybe what Tucker was thinking is, this is the one guy that deserves this. I don't know. <laughs> um, but here's the way I interpreted it. That poor little Tucker felt discomfort. And he said, I know where I need to be. And he hopped in Grandpa's lap. There's no better place in the world for you to be with your garbage than in the lap of the Father who loves you with all he is worth so much that he gave his son. So with all of your discomfort running through life, when you're aware of your garbage, where do you need to be? Crawl into the lap of the Father. Say, this is where I belong. This is where I'm safe. And this is what it has cost. I should stop being so Italian. <laughs> um, it cost the blood of the Son. Blood which ran down the arms of the Son on the cross. So take and drink and remember the shed blood of Jesus who died for you. Let's pray and then we'll finish with a song. God, thank you. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, for the promise of a resurrection, a new life. When we find ourselves saying, I need a new beginning, I need to start again, I need hope, I need to deal with all this garbage in my life, God, I thank you that there is a place where we belong. We can crawl into the lap of the Father and we can say, Father, here is where I'm safe. Thank you, God, for that promise. Thank you for that hope. I pray, God, that that would be real to all of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.